Is that got it? I think so. Now the next thing is to turn the computer on. And I don't know the answer to that one. Well, <laughs> prayer answered. Thank you. I was afraid I was going to have to sing. Uh, and the only song I know is Ephesians 4.32. Do you all know that one? Do, 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 do. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God for Christ's sake. Has, has forgiven you. Do, 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 do. Ephesians 4.32. Uh, Dr. Dean said to, to do something so that everybody will leave on time. I thought that might work. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to learn uh, more about family history. We're going to appreciate more about family history. And uh, some of this will... Uh, have a little bit of overlap from this morning, but not a whole lot. A reminder that we come from two different families, uh, our biological family, and then also on believing in Christ as Savior, the forever family of the redeemed. So again, Adam's family we were born into. We had no choice. Uh, God chose for us to be who we are, when we are, where we are, in the family that we are in. And that was purely a matter of His grace. And that's why we ended up being born who we are. But then, let's see, I hope Tommy Ice doesn't hear me say this. But you get to have a choice whether or not you get to be, just kidding on that. I got to make a Calvinist joke. Uh, um, what can I say? How much, how much free will is there in the decisions we make? I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I'm a lawyer, Okay. I am the son of a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. His father was a lawyer, and his father was a lawyer. So did I really have any choice in the matter? <laughs> and yet my siblings, none of them are lawyers. How did they escape? But anyway, but if we receive him, we get to be in the forever family. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power, authority, exousia, to become the sons or children of God, even unto them who believe on his name. So we're thinking about both families that we belong to at this point. But one of the verses that uh, often comes up when we think about being born into a family is from Psalm 139. And that's one that uh, has a very good description of how God makes the physical bodies of babies in the womb. For you have possessed my reins or inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. Um, the, the house of, excuse me, the, the, the Jewish festival of booths is related to the verb that's, that's involved here. Um, uh, Sukkot. Uh, you have covered me. You, you have put me in a tent in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The wonderful, that's the biology side. The fearful, that's all the near misses along the way that could have resulted in us not arriving safely on planet Earth. 
That's all the near misses that are God's providence and his sovereignty. Otherwise, we don't get here. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought. Now, that's an interesting uh, King James translation of a pu'al perfect form of rakam. If you do a word study on rakam, say take a Young's Concordance or whatever your electronic equivalent of that is, and look at all the uses of rakam, and it's always translated something like stitch, embroider, knit. Every single time it's ever translated. And when the King James translator saw that verb in this psalm, they went, oh, embroidered? Um, let's translate it curiously wrought. <laughs> uh, but it, it's really amazing. But at the, at the biochemical level, that is exactly what is happening. God is taking a pattern that is for our physical body to be made and that's how it is constructed inside the womb thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect meaning not complete and in thy book all my members were written which in continuous in continuance were fashioned and that's exactly how the the body is built and develops when as yet there was none of them it is just a huge miracle everything that goes on with the building of a baby. In fact, we have a DVD that we put out on that that is really an amazing DVD, by the way. Uh, I will recommend the DVD by Dr. Randy Galuza, who's our current president at ICR. He has a unique background. Um, he uh, he went to mining school. He, he um, got, got married right out of high school, and uh, he went to mining school and then switched from there to go to Moody Bible Institute Graduated from Moody Bible Institute, went back to uh, college to become light, uh, graduate as an engineer, become licensed an engineer. As an engineer, he went into the Navy, served in construction engineering and other things that the Navy wanted him to do, and so learned to think like an engineer. In fact, he is an engineer. And then from there, uh, when his time serving the Navy was done, he joined the Air Force and became a, uh, went to medical school through his Air Force uh, um, commitment and served as a surgeon in Afghanistan and, and, and in other areas. So he is a physician and is an engineer at the same time. So when he explains to you what's going on inside the human body, he really has insights that other MDs don't have. Anyway, just a little side note there. Um, if you really want to appreciate some of the detail work that God put into our bodies, um, read some of the books or watch some of the DVDs that Randy Glues has put out. He he can really amaze you. Um, and better than that, he will make you more amazed at God as our creator and the one who put together our human bodies. But it's not just our physical bodies that God created. There's also the part of us that's not physical, the part that lives inside the body. And whether you call that person or soul or spirit or personality or whatever you want to call it, there's that part of us that God has created that is our real identity, and it's not physical. So um, for years, uh, I, I would have occasionally questions, and people would say, the verb bara in, in the Old Testament, translated created, it appears in the first verse of the Bible. Is that only used in reference to what God did on creation week? Because I've heard from many speakers that that verb is 
only used for what God does, did during creation week. That it was used on day one when he created, let's see, I'm trying to remember the physical, uh, the, the technical term. Oh, stuff. Yeah, when he created stuff. <laughs> when he created physical stuff on day one, the word barrage used. And then on day five, the next time barrage used is when he created the first animal life that had a nephish, that had an animal soul. That was something new out of nothing. It wasn't a recycling of other stuff that he'd made before. So the, the physical bodies were made of physical stuff. But the part of your dog that is missing when your dog dies, that personality, that animal soul, that, that little whatever you call that dog personality, uh, which isn't physical, that God made that new out of nothing on day five because that's when he made creatures of the air and creatures of the uh, sea. And that would include some marine mammals and and some birds. Um, anyway, so that's the second time we see Barah used. The third time, of course, is on day six when he makes mankind, when he makes Adam and Eve, when he makes... Um, mankind unique, qualitatively different from all the animals in his image. And so we see that verb again. So the question that I've been asked many times is, is that verb ever used anywhere else in the Bible, not referring back to creation week? And I would have to honestly say, I haven't actually done the research and looked at every time that that's used in a concordance, but one of these days I'll do it. I got tired of always giving that excuse of one of these days I'm going to do it. I thought, I better just do it. And I ran into Psalm 102.18, which in the Hebrew text is numbered as verse 19. And there it is. This shall be written for the generation to come. Not something from, not the humans who were made on day six of creation week. And the people who shall be created. And, you know, that's a nifal. You know, obviously... It's passive when God creates you. He's the one doing the action. You're the one that the action is happening to. We don't create ourselves. Evolutionists like to think they create themselves, but they didn't. Um, But the people who shall be created shall praise the Lord. And so that is part of why we're here on this earth, is that we will be part of this Genesis mandate that humans uh, who, who lived before, who live now, and who live afterwards shall praise the Lord. And God is the one who is continuously creating new people. When when a, a, a new baby is conceived, God is the one who is putting into that physical, little teeny physical body, which, you know, at one point is an embryo and then gets bigger and eventually comes out. Um, and if uh, you've seen a baby born, you'll never forget it. And they showed me the movie, and they said that this is what they this is what it's like. But that baby was groggy and not very active. I think maybe there's a lot of painkiller involved in in that childbirth. And so when our son was born, he was not groggy. He was very active. He was kicking up a storm. Anyway, um, Psalm 102:18. God is in the creating business. He's not creating physical stuff anymore. He rested from that but he is continuing to create uh, new people uh, through procreation. And he's also in the creating business of creating people who are born again, giving regenerated lives. 
that we are created in Christ Jesus to be an honor to him. So we're thinking about um, how much work God has done to make us who we are. And he also gives us, uh, we're not we're not excused from honoring him just because of our background. So if you were born into a background, uh, that might that might give you a little bit of an excuse for a while, but it's not an excuse. It's not a permanent excuse. And when I think um, one of the examples I think of that from scriptures is Numbers chapter 26, which talks about Korah. Now, remember, Korah was one of the rebels who challenged Moses. He's mentioned in the book of Jude. And when Korah and his rebels opposed Moses, who is God's chosen, God did a miracle. He opened up the earth and the earth gobbled up Korah and those rebels. Um, And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died. What time the fire devoured or consumed 250 men and they became for a sign that is. Uh, you could remember them and what they represented. Notwithstanding, Korah's children died not. And that's because when he stood against Moses and Moses said, if you're on my side, come over here. Korah's children said, we're not with you, Dad. We're walking over here and we're going to stand with Moses. It is... uh, Whatever your parents did wrong or taught you wrong theologically or whatever like that, if they taught you to avoid getting saved, that's not an excuse that lets you off the hook. When the Bible says you're commanded to be saved. And uh, so if you look in the book of Psalms, one example, that would be Psalm 42. And as you know from your book of Psalms, you know how there's little subtitles at the beginning of the first verse. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those little subtitles. Those were not invented by editors at the publishing house. They are actually part of the inspired Hebrew text. And sometimes that throws off the numbering. And that's why some uh, some parts of Psalms, they're one number off what they are in our English Bible. Anyway, some of the Psalms uh, reference the sons of Korah because they were given a special uh, place in Israel because they had taken a stand. Um, uh, Looking at graveyards and looking at childhood homes and things like that remind you of some of the things that God does to, to reach out to you and to teach you his truth. And I'll mention two things here that come to mind. Uh, One is when I was in kindergarten, there was no public kindergarten in my neighborhood. And so my parents wanted me to have the advantage of that, and there was a Baptist. There was a Baptist lady who had a kindergarten, and my family was not Baptist. In fact, my family, well, my family was not doctrinally like Chafer's Theological Seminary. I'll leave it at that. Uh, l- later in life, when there was a revival, I was coached on why I should not trust in Christ as Savior and why I should not believe that you get salvation by choosing Christ as your Savior. Okay, Uh, But anyway, so my parents debated on whether I should be entrusted to this Baptist lady who had a private kindergarten in her home. Her name was Mrs. Wheeler. And I I still remember hearing one of my parents say, oh, she won't hurt him. (laughs) 
<laughs> and she didn't. Uh, so we, we went there, we learned her alphabet, and we drew, drew pictures and, and learned little things and learned her alphabet and had uh, punch and cookies, and, and we prayed before we had refreshments, and sometimes Mrs. Wheeler would read to us from the Bible. And one particular day, <clears throat> her, her uh, daughter came home from college. I guess uh, college had you know some kind of a spring break or something like that. But I was still there with the other little kids, and we were learning to take A and draw an apple and B and draw a bug or whatever. And so while we're over here at our tables drawing our little things, I can hear Mrs. Wheeler talking to her college-age daughter. And earlier in that little time together, Mrs. Wheeler had passed out mag- uh, magnets and paper clips and various things so that we could take the magnet and touch it to this to see if it would stick and then, or maybe touch it to this, and it didn't stick. And we could notice there's a difference. Some things are attracted to magnets, other things are not. And so she told us a little bit about this. And her daughter said, why are you teaching them science? This is way over their head. They can't understand this. I thought, whoa, I'm learning something I'm not supposed to learn yet. <laughs> I'm listening in on this. And uh, Mrs. Wheeler said, oh, I don't expect him to remember all the details of this. But but next year, they're going to go to school. And I thought, yeah, big school where my older brother goes, you know, where there's a first grade and a second grade. You know, I'm just in kindergarten now, but that's big school. He said, well, when they go to uh, school next year, they're going to be taught science. And they're going to be taught science without God. Huh? And and I want them to remember that when they were in kindergarten, they had already learned some science from somebody who believed in God, who reverenced the Bible, and who had them to pray before they ate uh, cookies and, and had the little punch. Wow. Thank you, Mrs. Wheeler. <laughs> that would help prepare me for the public school experience. Um, this is an encouragement to all of you who work with young people. If you work with little kids or if you work, work with older kids, never underestimate how much they are learning from you. And when they look like all they're doing is coloring on a piece of paper, they might be listening in on your conversations with somebody else and finding out that they're learning stuff that they weren't supposed to learn until later. Oh, well. Skipping forward to second grade, uh, I promise someone... <laughs> I got in trouble in first grade. I'm not going to talk about that. In second grade, at the end of the year, Mrs. Thelma Bumgardner, do you think she made an impression on me? I remember her name, Mrs. Thelma Bumgardner, second grade. You know, that was a few years ago for me. I mean, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'll just say this. When I started public school, they still had segregation in the state of Maryland. Okay, so that takes that goes back a few years. So Mrs. Thelma Bumgardner... Um, She'd been told that she, you know, separation of state and all that stuff, and she couldn't bring religion into the classroom. So she taught us John 3.16. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, if they fire me, the Lord will take care of me. I've lived long enough that I know the Lord takes care of his own. Anyway, at the end of this school year, she would give one boy a bird book and one girl a bird book. And I still have that bird book to this day with her name in it. And she flipped open the book. <clears throat> you know this is how I became a bird watcher. So she flipped open the book and shows it to me. and says, you can learn about all these different 
of birds. And you can learn what kind of things they like to eat <clears throat> and where they like to live. There's the little maps show their migration if they migrate. And you can learn a lot about what they look like. And they're beautiful. And God made all those birds. And let's see. Now, pages 12 and 13. Oh, this is an evolutionary tree. This is a chart here. And it's, you can see here it says evolutionary tree. Don't believe it. It's a lie. <laughs> Who would put a lie in a book? I'm in second grade. I'm being told. You know, people put lies in books. This is the first time I'd heard that. Mrs. Bumgard told me, said... I said, well, why did they put a lie in the book? She said, because they don't want to believe in God. They know that God created them, but they don't want to think about that. So they want to think a different thought of how birds got here. And so they make up this really stupid idea, and they draw it out like they know something. And then right up here at the top, it says that feathers evolve from fish scales. And she said, I studied a lot about fish and a lot about birds. And I can tell you feathers are nothing at all like fish scales. So these two pages, they're just lies. Don't believe them. Don't waste your time on them. Enjoy the rest of the book. That was my introduction to creation science in second grade. And I have loved birds ever since. Plus, God didn't make me a grackle. And so that helps too. All right. So I'm thankful that God made me who he chose to make me. And um, anyway, wish we could. Uh, I'll have to go a little faster tonight because of the hour. But um, my encouragement to you is that you investigate your family history, but do it from a biblical creation perspective. Learn what you can about how you got here and think it through. And when you when you find out that, uh, let's say in one case, I don't know if I mentioned this before, it's it's because as you get older, you get forgetful. I mean, there's two things that happen when you get older. One is you get forgetful. And then the other is. (laughs) Well, whatever it was. Anyway, there's something else. I forgot what it was. Uh, But but uh, one of the things I learned was that one of my ancestors. Oh, yeah, I already told you that. That's what happens when you forget. Better move on to Genesis chapter 11. And this is where family history gets split up geographically. The whole earth was of one language, that is one lip, and of one speech or one set of words. And they said, go, let's build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name lest we be scattered. God had told them, fill the earth. So what do they want to do? Well, they don't want to be scattered. They're rebelling against God. Their plan didn't work. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So God took their rebellion, flipped it upside down, and gave uh, roughly 70 different language groups, and then, of course, they've kind of splintered since into, you know, depending on whether you're a lumper or a splinter, they're either dialects or separate languages. But anyway, so that's uh, the book of Genesis telling you where languages come from. And as a result of languages being different, we have what we call different ethnic groups. And that's for the very simple reason that when you get of the age to get married, you typically, there's several things you might look for in in a spouse. And of course, people are different. People have different priorities. But one thing that you generally would look for in a potential spouse is 
they speak the same language you do. All right? Now, I mean, I've heard people say, yeah, my husband, he doesn't... Anyway, but I'm not... You know, that was the difference between figurative and, and non-figurative uses of language, which we learned earlier. Uh, but as a result, instead of having one big gene pool, which you had before Babel, you now have all of these different sub-gene pools where people keep intermarrying all within a language group. And as a, as a result, over time, the recessive uh, traits that would be expressed by uh, recessive genes come to make one language-speaking group have certain similarities. And so we end up with people who kind of look like they belong to this language group or another. But then you always got these people who are bilingual or trilingual, and they, you know they're the jokers in the group. So they, they, uh, they can bridge different gene pools that are otherwise language-restricted. All right, now I want to illustrate something in the New Testament that kind of ties to that. Uh, what is the last book that Paul wrote? Second Timothy. So he's about to he's about to be martyred and to go on to meet his Lord and Savior. So he's going to be pretty serious. And the last thing, the last chapter of the last book he wrote, would be Second Timothy chapter four. And the very last verse is, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. But if we go to the penultimate verse, that is the verse before it, he says some very important things that have a lot packed into a few words. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you. Also, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. And I want us to think for just a few moments about Pudens and Linus and Claudia. Now, I know some of you think that Linus is the guy with the blanket. All right. Well, at least you got the right name. Linus is the Latinized form of Lynn. See, he's known to secular history as well. Lynn was a British Celt. Um, that is, before... England became known as an Anglo-Saxon uh, um, country. The Saxons took over, but before the Saxons took over, the Roman Empire had actually conquered what is now England. They left Scotland alone. You don't, I mean, they, they couldn't handle the Scots. And a lot of the Celts, the British Celts, who lived in England, if they didn't want to be ruled by the English, they moved west and became the Welsh, although the Romans also visited there too. But uh, the native people of England were Celtic people, spoke a Celtic, Celtic language, kind of like Irish Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic, and the Romans were dominating them at that time. And at one point there was a rebellion in one of the Celtic noble families, and one member of that noble family was Lynn and his sister Gladys. And when you take Gladys and you Latinize it, it becomes Claudia. So this is a brother and a sister. Linus or Lynn and Claudia or Gladys. And when there was a rebellion against Rome, the Rome, Roman officers moved in. They arrested members of that family. They hauled them as hostages to Rome and they ended up in captivity in Rome. 
And the expectation was whoever the ringleader was would be put to death. And then the others would be kept there as hostages. And then someone would go back to England and say, you know what? We want you now to continue to help us to rule this part of England. And if you don't, we'll kill your family members who were holding hostage in Rome. So that'll help you to obey and be submissive to our authority. And so some portion of that family was allowed to go back to England on a Roman boat, but they were told, you know, don't don't cross Rome or else we're going to kill the members of your family who are still being held as hostages in England. Two of those were Linus and Claudia. And then you end up with this guy named Rufus Pudens, who's also known to secular history. Rufus, I guess, either meant he had red hair or a reddish complexion. So that's kind of a nickname based on a, on the color that he was. And sometimes he's mentioned in Scripture as Rufus, and sometimes he's mentioned as Pudens. Here he's mentioned as Pudens. Well, we don't know a lot about him. We have a few dots, and we can kind of connect the dots, because what we do know from uh, uh, geni- family history records is that Pudens marries Claudia. So that means Pudens who was a, a member of Roman nobility. He was not Celtic, he was Roman. And before he married Claudia, he was a wild, very fast-lane sinning, partying uh, Roman nobleman. And he had a reputation for being a wild, partying, heathen, sinful man. And then he gets married to Claudia, and his lifestyle changes now those who were his friends from his unsaved life they think that it's all claudia's dealing doing that he's changed they don't recognize that the lord jesus christ is his savior and he has the indwelling holy spirit who is changing his life and making him a good husband and so one of their uh, poets a fellow named marshall at one point is writing about this and he says What has happened to our friend Pudens? He has married a savage and she has civilized him. (laughs) Because they regarded the Brits as savages, whereas the Romans, of course, they were sophisticated. Well, anyway, um, if you follow their family history, you find that in the next generation or so, there is a baby boy who's born and he is not given a Roman name. He's given the name Timothy. Where did that come from? <laughs> um, who else do we know who was in a Roman jail at that time during the first century? Uh, so the gospel was being shared in very interesting ways, and some of those ways involved travel. And in fact, the Roman boats that went to England and took Claudia and Linus to Rome, which is where they end up hearing the gospel and become Christians, and then some of their family go back to England and evangelize there so that within the first century you have uh, New Testament Christianity being um, propagated uh, on the island of Britain in what is today called England. Anyway, so that's Second Timothy 4.21. Uh, the, uh, one of the guys who did a dissertation on that is this fellow you hear, see here standing next to me in the blue shirt. He went home to be with the Lord about a year ago today or about a year ago this month. And uh, quite a scholar, uh, Dr. Bill Cooper, uh, who lived in the London area. 
But uh, there's there's a lot of amazing, amazing examples of how God has been working in in people groups around the world. And, of course, you're not going to learn about it on regular TV and you're not going to learn about it in public schools. But if you dig really hard, um, there's a lot of good history out there that honors the Lord and gives evidence of how he's been working providentially among people. Well, we return to the Great Commission. Uh, Go ye therefore discipling all nations in a, a teaching in a discipling way, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's see, that's one name and three three individuals. Sounds like a triunity. Uh, didactically teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So the family history blends with the Great Commission. The two go together. And we already talked about some Viking history from last time. Um, but studying family history can help us to appreciate the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of family history in the Bible. And uh, some of the great pieces of history, some of which are very dramatic. I mean, you think about the nation of Israel and how the, the uh, earliest generations of that family, starting with Abraham, are are summarized for us in the book of Genesis. Or if you think about the book of Ruth, it came to pass in the days uh, when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And his two sons, their names, I forget what they are, but I think in Hebrew it means something like weak and wimpy. But uh, they lived up to their names. They died quickly when they got to Moab, but not before they married. And so now you, and, and then... Naomi's husband married. So all three men have died, and there are three widows now. So Naomi decides she's going to return to Moab. She'd heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people, that is, his people in in, uh, Judea, and had given them bread. So the famine is over, so she decides to go back, and Ruth goes with her because now Ruth is a believer in her God. And, of course, Ruth is part of the Messianic line. So that's a real important uh, uh, family history to appreciate. But notice that there was a crisis. There was a tragedy, actually three tragedies, start preceded by a, a famine crisis. And yet God used the movement of people to connect the right people at the right time so that certain family lines would, would uh, be established. And in this case, it was the Messianic line. What about in the New Testament? We uh, see a little family history in in the book of Acts when Paul is arrested and there is a threat to assassinate him while he is being taken uh, by the Romans. And uh, here you have a family member who comes in and divulges that um, there's this plot that's been overheard to assassinate Paul. And so Paul is able to... uh, um, uh, guide the boy to go tell the right member of the Roman force that was protecting him. And as a result, he gets a protective bodyguard before he leaves. And those guys who swore that they wouldn't eat until they'd killed Paul, I guess they starved. Either that or they they changed their mind. (laughs) But uh, you can use family history to glorify God. Um, Take those examples of times in your life where God made it clear to you that he was taking care of you one way or another. 
and make sure that you've passed those on to the next generation, or it doesn't have to be the next generation. It could be nephews and nieces or cousins, uh, you know. But the idea is take that truth that honors God and pass it on to somebody who's willing to listen or willing to read. Uh, We have a lot of good technology today that we can use for recording information and, and transferring information and, you know, taking a photograph, scanning it, and sending it as an attachment to an email. There's a lot of different ways that, that we can promote um, a God-glorifying sharing of family history. And you can take specific things that happen in your life, and just as Joshua 4.6 is an example of using a memorial as a teaching tool, Uh, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying, what mean ye by these stones? And there's your opportunity to be a witness of God's providence and his kindness and say, oh, this is what was happening back then. And this is how God took care of us. Or this is how God instructed us so that we understood the truth when we've been lied to. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that inheritance is not just money. Look for teachable moments because, as you know, as you can tell from those three grandkids there, what are they doing? They're wearing my shoes. My shoes are big, you know, 14 extra, extra wide. But anyway, um, the point is the time will come when they are filling our shoes. And what will we give them to work with when they have to confront the the world that they have to live in that we won't? Well, uh, we are to teach them diligently and to talk Uh, to them when they're sitting, when they're walking, when we lie down, when we rise up. In other words, use every opportunity that you have every day with the the young ones in your family. Uh, It's okay to tell those who are older too, but this this, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 scripture is specifically um, addressing the need for the younger generation to learn about God and learn how his truths match the world that they live in. And realize they're going to be putting a lot of things in their mouth. Like this little girl who's about to eat a scorpion on a stick. And if you'll notice, what's her little sister doing? Watching. It's like, I'm going to copy big sister. Whatever she does, I'm going to do. So big sister needs to be a good role model because little sister's going to copy her in a lot of things. Um, So we need to protect what goes into their mouths or what goes into their eyes. And uh, certainly the opportunities for bad things to go into their minds is very much increased because of the technology we have today. But when we do have positive family heritage, we want to uh, emphasize that, appreciate that. Paul said to Timothy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded that you have it also, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So his mother and his grandmother were godly, and not everybody in his family apparently was godly, but his mother was and his grandmother was, and there was a good harvest because of that, because in the life of Timothy, you end, uh, God was glorified in a very huge way. So think about who your kinfolk are. And, and as I said this morning, think about those who are kinfolk in the sense of blood relations from the family you were born into physically, 
but also think about who are family to you because of marriage. And then, of course, uh, I've added to that, you know, others who come into your life. I want to clarify this. I am not an evolutionist. I do not believe that that reindeer is part of my family. Uh, If you'll look carefully at the edge of that picture, there's a hand that's feeding food to the reindeer. Okay, that's my aunt who gave me volumes and volumes of our family history. So when we were up in Alaska, we visited a reindeer farm. Anyway, so not, not an evolutionist. I only have human ancestors. All right. I want to be clear on that. Uh, and then, uh, as, then you have you know, other situations like adoptions and uh, uh, stepkin and others who, one way or another, have become family to you. Study what God has done in their lives. Study what God did in lives before them so that they would even arrive and be a part of your life. God has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And we can appreciate what God has done because he is accomplishing his will. And put it in writing. When there's something where you can honor God by recording something before you forget about it or before you don't have the opportunity to share it with somebody else who could benefit from it, put it in writing. One of the simplest ways to put something in writing would be an email. That's really easy. I mean, if you think about a lot of emails, you can say something you have to say, and then if you if you just wait a few extra seconds, you can think of one more sentence you could add to it that is somehow a blessing to that person or somehow honors God. Just just take a little extra time before you hit send and add one more thought to that email. You know, that's not going to work in every situation, but it'll work in a lot of situations if you put your mind to it. Well, this idea of uh, um, saying something in writing about family history in a way that honors God, that's nothing new. If you recognize that Bluetooth symbol, Bluetooth is named after a Christian Viking king, the first Christian king of Denmark, whose name was Harold Bluetooth. You know, apparently he had an injury in his tooth. I mean, they had kind of a injury-prone lifestyle back then. And... uh, But he had two stones, which you can still see today if you go to the right part of Denmark. And the inscription in Viking runes says, King Harold ordered this monument made in memory of Gorm, his father, in memory of Thurve, his mother, uh, that Harold who won for himself all of Denmark and Norway and made the Danes Christian. And then on the other side of the stone says, King Gorm made this monument in memory of Thurve, his wife, Denmark's adornment. So you have a blending of family history and a testimony that that um, Bluetooth himself was proud of the fact that he had uh, sponsored Christianity in Denmark. And so because it so changed everything in Denmark because of his changes in bringing Christianity to Denmark, it just... Uh, It was a complete change after that. So when the Bluetooth folks invented their company and they wanted a symbol, they wanted a name, they went, we're going to so revolutionize the world technologically by what we're going to do. It will be like when Bluetooth brought Christianity to Denmark. Well, you know, I'll let you think what you think about that. But that is where that Bluetooth symbol came from. And it's actually, uh, he's one who practiced family history and honored God in the process. Another example of that would be for those of you who like to write poetry, you could copy the role model of um, Anne Bradstreet. She was a Puritan mother, uh, 
very smart lady, wrote lots of poetry, raised lots of children, and her poetry is um, it's it's just very um, it's about very serious topics in life. Uh, at one point, she was afraid she was going to die, and so she was writing about uh, each of her children and how some of them were following God and some of them were not. Uh, if you have the opportunity to read her poetry, I certainly recommend it. Um, the little boy chewing his foot has nothing to do with her poetry. I'm not sure why that's there. Anyway, you want to document family history, memory. Maybe that was a grandson. Uh, yeah, I got to stick in pictures of grandson. Uh, when when your family has special adventures, like taking a mountain hiking trip or something like that, or or uh, um, those would be good adventures to write up somehow preserve it in photographs and words and find a way to honor God in the process and pass that on and make that a not only a good family memory but also an opportunity to witness to God's goodness and how much we appreciate him. Uh, other milestones would include things like graduations where those opportunities to celebrate something important happening in the family can be used to honor God if we are intentional about it. And then, of course, you know, just praying for the needs of of whoever's in your Christian group, that it, whoever you fellowship with, whoever you pray with, they will have needs, and there's a time to to do that. Well, now we come to the concept of living epistles. And uh, living epistles is really, it connects with family history in that the way that we either use opportunities to honor God with with um, family history and sharing it in a way that honors God or not is actually a form of revealed truth. i got to be careful I say that uh, because only the Bible is inerrant and sufficient, as we were reminded, and all those other adjectives like perfect and... and uh, um, Anyway, the Bible is perfect in all of these ways, and it has no errors. But here's something for you to think about. Uh, In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar has a party-crashing hand that writes graffiti on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. And that was an Aramaic message that he did not want to hear. And he did not want it really, it, he didn't really want to know the truth of what that was because he felt guilty about what he's doing. And the reason why he felt guilty about what he was doing at that party is because he was guilty in what he was doing at that party. You know, a lot of times when people have guilt feelings, it's because they're guilty. And uh, so when somebody says, oh, I feel guilty, well, maybe you are. And, you know, maybe the main thing you need is forgiveness and, and uh, to ask God to direct you not to do that again. But uh, he was guilty. And he was dishonoring God on purpose. And then God showed up uh, in, a, in an unusual way and wrote on the wall and wrote that basically he was being judged and he was losing his kinship and before the night was over his life as well. And so he wants to know what's going on. And if you read Daniel 5, it says that his, his knees smote together and that his reins were loosed, which kind of means... He needed to change his clothing. You know, he something happened in his clothing that showed lack of self-control and great fear, and you get the idea. And uh, so then what he does is he calls for the experts 
he calls for the expert, different groups of experts in his uh, empire. And, uh, and of the four categories of experts he calls, he calls only three of them. And if, if you look at Daniel chapter 2 and, and uh, there's a couple other chapters that mention the different experts that were in the kingdom at that time, there was uh, the, the ones who looked at livers in order to do fortune telling. I think they're called soothsayers in uh, King James. And you had the Chaldeans and you had the, uh, the astrologers. And then you had the Magi. He did not call the magicians or the Magi because that's the category that Daniel was in and he did not want Daniel to come explain what was on the wall. He wanted anybody else but Daniel's group. But they couldn't explain it. So the queen mother says... Uh, if you really want to know what's going on, call in Daniel. He, he, can, he can explain things like this. So Daniel comes in, and this is where we end up. Uh, he is confronting Belshazzar, and he's recounting to him some family history. Specifically, God worked in the family life, uh, Belshazzar's family, and God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and that's something that everybody in the family knew about. So they had seen God working in the life of one of their family members at least. And what Belshazzar was doing was at odds with the truth that he knew or should have known from being in that family. But when his heart, that is Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, of course the word son here means direct male descendant, so it could be son or grandson or great-grandson. That's the way Aramaic works and Hebrew is the same way. So you, his direct male descendant, O Belshazzar, not O King Belshazzar, he's just addressing him as Belshazzar, You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the God in whose hand your breath is and whose are all your ways. You have not glorified. Daniel pointed his finger, at least verbally, at the king and indicted him, not by quoting scripture, although scripture is the perfect revealed truth from God, He did not uh, uh, give him a lesson, a nature sermon, although nature is a witness of God. Um, But what he did do is he pointed to something in the family history that Belshazzar knew. And he said, you push that truth away. Um, And as a result, your, your number is up. Well, Paul talks about the same concept in 2 Timothy it's not Timothy. Second Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, he talks about living epistles. He said to the Corinthians, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Paul told the Corinthians that their lives were a type of epistle. Now, they weren't inspired epistles. They were very errant, very fallible. But that's no excuse to not be a witness. All of us are God's epistles. We're like little paraphrases. 
And as some people have said, we're the only Bible that some people will ever read. They will read our lives. And they'll either see a good paraphrase or a really sloppy paraphrase. But they will see something of God's work in our lives. And what Daniel reminds us is that they will be held accountable by God for what they do with the truth that God gives to them through our fallible lives. So we want to be good paraphrases. Uh, and we realize that um, that people will be held accountable by God for what they did with the truth that we witnessed to them. So we need to take that responsibility seriously. Uh, another topic I mentioned before, but I, I got to mention it again, and that is there's all kinds of near misses in our lives. And in fact, just to get on the, the highways, you know, I mean, how many of you had a near miss on your way here from wherever you started at the beginning of this conference? I mean, we had near misses and there's lots, lots of different kinds of near misses, but it's good to know that God is taking care of us until it's our day to go home. There's no such thing as luck. You know that you could have been a grackle and we know that it is God's grace that we were even created who we are. It is God's grace that he provides us with redemption in Christ to save us from our sin. And we know this God's grace that he gave us the Bible so that we could know what is true. And so we can thank him for that, and we can try to have our lives be uh, halfway, I mean, at least decent paraphrases so that he's honored by that. And uh, I should mention, what is the worst, the worst version of the Bible that there is? It's the closed Bible. Because even the best translation, if it remains closed, it doesn't do you any good. So we want to have open Bibles, and we want to be good paraphrases. And um, let me say a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had together, the wonderful music of the choir, and these great hymns. It's so good to, to not only sing the hymns and tell you that we honor you and we love you, and the good theology that is in those hymns, we, we just appreciate that. Uh, we thank you for putting us in the family context that we ha have been put into, and we want to honor you with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for that, Jim. Thank you. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes, so we'll take a couple of questions. Anybody have any, any questions? Natasha. So tracing family histories is a lot easier. It can be argued, argued with European and Caucasian lineages. So a major attack on the church and falling away is due to people groups who have lost their family history due to slave trade and other displacements. And they're struggling to find their history. So instead of going towards a triune God for identity, there's an uprising in comedic religions and um, like identities such as Hebrew Israelite and things like that. So what would be your answer to working with somebody who has a lack of family history and they're struggling to find their identity and they're instead of going towards that God, they're going away from that triune God? And that question has come up with my students. Um, as, as I said before, there's three categories of family histories that you can think about 
Uh, and of course, every every person's situation is going to be different. We're all individuals. So how much is available and how hard I have to find a dig to learn something about mine or my wife's or my youth pastors, uh, the same would be true for everyone else. And <clears throat> you might concentrate on whoever are those persons who taught you the Bible or who led you to Christ. And wh- what is... Um, Oh, Oh, I thought he was trying to take it off, meaning y'all need to clear out of here and, you know, shut up, Johnson, let him go home. Okay, okay, all right. uh, um, That would be something to be worth praying about, and if a person is a Christian, then that person can probably think of at least one person who helped them to make the decision to become a Christian and might be able to learn something of that person's family history. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but uh, I have one history article that is published about the family I was born into, and I have one history article that is published about the family history that my wife was born into, but I have about nine history articles that are published about the family life and the background of my youth pastor, the one who came from Yugoslavia after World War II and made it to America and went to Moody Bible Institute. Uh, So you don't have to limit yourself to blood relations or uh, in-laws. There may be someone else who you could appreciate how God worked in that person's life and in their family history because that person became a, a very serious blessing to your life or the person you're talking to. But that would be where I would start. And uh, if someone wants to investigate, I wouldn't be too surprised if God doesn't give them something to learn that they can appreciate.